Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this specialist series Explore How to Plan an Expedition, a series created for the Royal Geographical Society. For those of you who don't listen to the Adventure Podcast regularly, I'm Matt Pycroft, an expedition specialist, filmmaker and photographer, and I've been going on expeditions under various banners for 15 years. I also sit on the council of the RGS. This episode is the first in our Camp Life series, where we speak to a single individual about a specific type of expedition terrain. In this series within a series, we'll speak to five different experts on the subjects of deserts, oceans, mountains, rainforests, and polar regions. In this deserts episode, our guest is Mark Evans. Based in Muscat, Oman, Mark is an experienced desert and polar explorer and guide, writer, speaker, and wilderness advocate. 22 years spent living and travelling extensively in Arabia, backed up by 80-day camel expeditions, a 49-day crossing of the Rub al-Khali, a 55-day 1,700-kilometre solo kayak journey from UAE to Yemen, and remote 4x4 journeys throughout Saudi Arabia and Oman, give Mark an unrivaled knowledge of deserts and how to live, work and travel in them. Specifically in this episode, we speak about the nuances of desert travel. What is a desert? How do you navigate through them? How do you source and carry water? How do we mitigate against heat? And what are Mark's top tips for campcraft, vehicle travel, emergency evacuation, cultural considerations and wildlife concerns? This episode is, at its core, a masterclass in desert survival. Finally, if you're looking for support with planning your own expedition or field research project, then head to rgs.org to begin the journey. Right, let's get started with episode four of Explore How to Plan an Expedition. Thanks very much for sitting down and doing this. Um, I wondered if you could just start, please, by introducing yourself. Tell me who you are and what you do. So uh, I'm Mark, Mark Evans. Uh, I am 62. Uh, I run Outward Bound in Oman, which is the only Outward Bound school. So Outward Bound is very familiar to people in the UK. Um, 83 years old now, 82, 83 years old. Uh, I run Outward Bound in Oman, which is the first Outward Bound school in an Arabic-speaking country. So I've lived here in the Middle East for 25 years um, and I've lived on the edge of the biggest sand desert on earth for 25 years, which gives me lots of uh, opportunity to explore. Somewhat qualified to comment on how to travel in deserts then. And so before we go into it in detail, I think actually it'd be good to give us some context around what do we mean by desert? What is the definition? And are there any misconceptions? Well, you know, I think I think that's a great question, Matt, because uh, I think that was one of the pushbacks, one of the questions that I had for your team yesterday was, you know, what do you want me to focus on? Because half of my life, you know, in my 20s, late teens, 20s, I was just focusing on, on polar stuff, high Arctic stuff, so Northwest Passage. Greenland, Svalbard, two solid years on Svalbard. That's a desert, you know. So, so you know, you're looking at sadly an, an ex-geography teacher here. So it's 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 somewhere with less than 250 millimeters of rainfall a year. So therefore, Antarctica, biggest desert on earth. Um, you know, I, I remember going to live in Saudi Arabia many years ago and living in uh, living in a little compound in the middle of the city and I exp- asking people, you know, just desperate to get out into the desert. Where, where, where is it? And they said, well, you, you're living in it. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's not all sand dunes and green oasis. It's, you know, you come to Oman, which is beautiful, been my home for the last 18 years. Oman is the size of the UK in area, but with the population of Scotland. So huge tracts of unexplored land, not unexplored, but just just wild places 
Um, and much of that is flat gravel plains, um, fairly tedious terrain to drive through, to travel through. Um, so it, uh, desert is, is just hugely variable in its landscape, but somewhere with less than 250 millimetres of rainfall a year. Brilliant. And you've touched on this already, but I think it would be really useful if you could give us kind of an overview of your experience in desert environments. In terms of sand desert, um, so, gosh, so I've kayaked around the periphery of it. So I, I did a 55-day solo kayak journey from the bit of Oman that nearly touches Iran to the bit of Oman that definitely touches Yemen. So that was just great, kayaking every day and sleeping on the beach. So that that uh, took me along the Arabian Sea and the Indian Ocean all the way down to Yemen. Uh, that was just incredible. Um but then in in the sands, really, um, it was the Royal Geographical Society expedition in, in the 1980s that led by Nigel Windsor and Shane worked on that. That was really the inspiration for me. So I came I came to the desert world for all the wrong reasons. All the polar expeditions I'd done had left me not in the best financial state. So I entered teaching for all the wrong reasons, came to the Middle East because of a tax-free salary, thought I'd hate it, ended up loving it, loving the culture, the landscape, the people. And, you know, it's been my home for 25 years now. So so um, most of the stuff I've done is in Oman and Saudi Arabia. Um, and, you know, I'm probably in the desert every weekend, every home. It's where I go to ponder and reflect and catch up and de-stress. But... Um, uh, bigger stuff, sort of more expedition-y stuff. I've done an 80-day journey from Salala, the southern city of Oman, to Muscat, and that was on foot and by camel. Um, several years ago with a couple of Omanis, we spent 49 days sleeping on the sand, travelling uh, from Salala to Doha, the capital of Qatar, where the World Cup's just been. We retraced the first ever crossing of the biggest sand desert on earth by a European, Bertram Thomas. His journey happened in 1930. No one's done it since because of the political obstacles of crossing and entering Saudi Arabia. But So to unlock that door, we had to get Prince Charles and um, the Sultan of Oman involved. And I've just now finished a 28-day journey across Saudi Arabia from east to west. Um, so those, those journeys involve camels uh, travelling on foot, um, always doing scientific research because that for me is what exploration is all about. Deliberately naive question. What science is there to do in deserts? What have you been doing for the last 25 years and, and why does it matter? Why do we need desert science? Yeah, well, good question because we're, we're just writing up the scientific report now for the Explorers Club in New York on, on our crossing of the empty... of, of, of Saudi, rather, from east to west. And... Um, you know, I think Roxanne is, Roxanne's a terrestrial ecologist who works at a university just north of Jeddah, and uh, and and she was talking to me about the value of what we did. Now, you know, I, I'm I'm not a scientist. I, I'm a, I'm an enthusiastic amateur. But then, so was Philby, and so was Thesiger, and so was Thomas. And you know, our expeditions were all very different. But what unites us is that capacity to add reasonably educated eyes and ears to an environment that is that is hopelessly understudied. And I think when we crossed the empty quarter back in uh, 2016, we got page three of the Times and the centre lead in the Times newspaper in the UK. And 
I remember they, they were saying, you know, it's great, an expedition that shows that there is more to Arabia than blood, sweat and oil. And the other comment they had was that, you know, it's nice to see a focus on an environment other than polar mountain and jungle. Because desert is definitely niche, within a niche world of exploration. Um, and, you know, there are very, you know, Saudi's, Saudi's utterly enormous. It's 10 times the size of UK with a population less than half of the UK. And so for poor people like Roxanne and Maxine and, and, and all these 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 ecologists and, and these scientists trying to find out what's there. They just haven't got enough people on the ground. And so us as, as citizen scientists, you know, we, we just did. So, for example, we, we did three, we focused on three projects going across Arabia back in er, earlier this year. One was, uh, and, and these, these for me are perfect scientific projects. They're, they're valuable to third parties who are experts who can interpret the data and use that for good purposes, um, but they're, they're they're not particularly intrusive on on the day to day expedition life. So, for example, the most important agricultural crop in Arabia is the date palm, and uh, and bats play a huge part in cross pollinating date palms. You know, they're, they're really important to the to the desert economy, uh, but they also have a bit of a bad rap thanks to COVID. So. So we, 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 we were given, thanks to the team at Koust, we were given a bat detector. And you know what? This for me is perfect science because all you do is you get into your sleeping bag at night and the last thing you do is you press a button, turn something on, and this bat detector will just record everything that flitters and flutters over during the night. It'll tell you what the echo echolocation frequency is. Therefore, the team will then be able to work out um, what species of bat that was. We had camera traps. Um, so we carried tin, small tins of tuna. So every night we'd, we'd f try and find a tree. There aren't many trees out there. If we couldn't find a tree, we'd find a rock. We'd, we'd tape this camera trap to the rock or the tree. We'd empty a tin of tuna and, uh, and then, you know, you, you, you cover it with twigs or a rock and make it hard for the animal to get to. So they've got to spend a bit of time in front of the camera getting it. Um, so that was great. And, uh, we've just been looking at what we've got now. Quite a few species of small mammals and, uh, and 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 some desert foxes as well and hedge, uh, I think Ethiopian hedgehogs. Um, second project was to support a bunch of guys in uh, Australia. They used to work at Cambridge University, so there was a time ten thousand years ago when what is now the biggest sand desert on earth. Uh, was as green as the steppe of Mongolia. Uh, and that was because the climate was different. The monsoon that touches southern Oman extended much further north. So there were people living actually um, in quite large numbers in Arabia. and and But they would live where there was permanent greenery along the riverbeds or the lake beds. And of course, you, you know, you're talking... Um, you know, a long time ago. So, so the evidence is in the form of lithic artifacts that lie under your feet. So small arrowheads that have been napped by skilled sort of artisans with a bit of flint. Um, and so, you know, my best mate is a Bobby in the UK. So Nigel and I um, parachuted across Greenland years ago when you didn't have these sexy little foil chutes. That it was, it was actual, an actual parachute, which was pretty pretty difficult to control uh, horizontally. But um, so, so I ended up walking with my team like a policeman most of the way across the desert of Saudi Arabia, just staring at the floor with 
hands clamped behind my back looking for these stone tools because they blend in so beautifully. We we found nothing for about 18, 19 days, but on, on day 20, we came across the most extraordinary site in the middle of some sand dunes where there was clearly a lake bed at one point, now completely dry, obviously, but we found some handheld stone axes that, according to the team, according to Michael Petralia's team in, in Australia, are six to 700,000 years old. And these stone tools were laying exactly where they were six or 700,000 years ago. So, you know, it was incredible thinking what was the last hand that held this stone tool. And so obviously our job was not to touch them. They're part of Saudi's national heritage. We would GPS them. So we put a GPS by the side, put a little little ruler so that the scientists could work out the dimensions, then take a photograph of, of the site. But, you know, once we found one, we found about 15 of these things. So it was obviously a stone tool, a lithic factory uh, lying in the desert. And then we take a photograph of the landscape so that the guys back in Australia can, can interpret what it was likely to be. And this is just great because it's a site that they've never been to um, because the country is so vast. Um, and then the, the third project we did was extreme environment psychology, you know, help, helping a team in the UK for years. So we, we worked on this project six years ago. Then it was pen and paper. Now it's morphed into an app, you know, because now we're talking and reading in the media about unmanned or, or rather manned space journeys going to Mars. Well, Blimey, that's going to be a long time. It, hard enough on your own, probably even harder when you're with someone else for that duration of time. You know, how are you going to interact? How are you going to cope with that psychologically? So, so those are three examples of science that we did. And uh, it's really just, just supporting those people out here trying to do some great work, but just without, you know, enough feet and eyes on the ground. I mean, it's all fascinating, obviously, and there's a whole podcast series in in and of this itself. But, um, you know, I think we should focus on some specific expedition skills and knowledge and kind of run through a quick list. And if you could give us kind of the lessons learned over 25 plus years of time on the ground, that would be great. And I think maybe <laughs> start with navigation. You know, how do you navigate in a desert? What makes it challenging? What equipment do you need? And why is it different if it is? Yeah, would well, you know it's not particularly different um, at, at all. And, uh, you know, I, I've led a year-long expedition to the Arctic where we overwintered on Svalbard, and the, and the kit list for that was four or five pages long. I mean, deserts are... Uh, sand deserts, arid environments are pretty straightforward, to be honest. It's not over-technical. We, we you know, graved, and you walk into outdoor shops in the UK and it's so easy to think, oh, gosh, I need one of those, I need one of those. Actually, you don't. So it's very easy to get over-technical and over-complex. Um, you know, the best way to navigate in the desert is using the sun. And as soon as you work out that the sun, you know, 24 hours in a day, 360 degrees in a circle, every hour your shadow is going to move 15 degrees, um, that is incredibly accurate. And uh, on our journey going to Doha from Solana many years ago, our route was pretty much due north. So, yep, I had a little handheld E-Trex Garmin, you know, the cheapest one you can buy. Um, but I only had only used one set of batteries. I only checked it once a day when I got into the tent just to see how far we'd done because I could hold a pretty much a north, straight north line by by using 
nature. You know, I'm a great follower of Tristan Goody's Natural Navigator stuff, and Tristan's been out here in Oman with me. And, uh, you know, very easy to hold a, a north line on your shadow. If it's one o'clock in the afternoon, then you're 15 degrees left of your shadow. If it's two o'clock in the afternoon, then, you know, your shadow's going to be, you know, you're going to be 30 degrees and, and so on. So, so that, the sh your shadow and using shadow sticks is, is a great way to navigate. Very low tech, but very accurate. Uh, another thing in the daytime is using, um, the wind. So, you know, in the UK, we look at sastrugi that builds up on the back of rocks, you know, with, with ice sastrugi on the Cairngorm Plateau. But in the desert, you know, sand accumulates on the downwind side of any obstacle. So the, pre pre the prevailing wind in the winter is from the north, the Shamal wind. So any little tails, and, and you, you only need something as big as a matchbox or, you know, a pebble a tail of sand will accumulate in the sheltered sign behind it. And that tail is pointing pretty much due south. So I can use my shadow, I can use these little telltales of sand. So in the daytime, it's dead easy. At night, you've got, uh, you know, the most incredible stars. So I never sleep in a tent in the desert. Why on earth would you want to? Because as soon as the sun goes down, the incredible sky comes to life and those there's no light pollution so those stars come right down to the horizon so you can do a 360 and i was i used to say this to, to wilfred thesiger because he'd be you know getting to the end of his negativity about vehicles and i'd say but you know sir wilfred it, it is still possible to sit on the top of a sand dune in the desert and do a complete 360 and see nothing but stars coming down to the horizon and and then he'd lean forward and he'd say is it and and then you'd go into his memories, which was great. So so the stars, you know, Orion, one of the stars, Mintaka, uh, the Orion, we all know Orion, Orion's belt, you know, Mintaka rises one degree off due east, breaks that horizon. Polaris, the Omar, the Arabs call it Kibla, which is the black stone in, the, in, in Mecca. Uh, that's the only star that does not move in the night sky. All the other stars rotate around it like pilgrims going to the Hajj, which is why the Arabs called Polaris and um, Kibla. So, you know, you've got a marker there every night. You know, it's not like the UK where you can barely see the stars. It's, uh, you know, you've got clarity of vision. So nav navigation is, 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 is really uh, pretty straightforward. Straightforward, but in a really romantic sense. I mean, I think, you know, the purpose of this podcast is to equip people but also I don't know how you feel about advocating turning the GPS off, whether it's a scientific expedition, a serious expedition, and just enjoying those methods of natural navigation. Yeah, well, gosh, I mean, turn it off, for goodness sake. I mean, we, we spend most of our life looking at screens far too much. I mean, you know, here's me. We, we, we use the GPS for our science to GPS what, whatever we find. You know, we, we use it when, when there's a need to use it. Of course, you can use a GPS all the time going across the desert, but who wants to have their head locked down on the device when there's so much to see around you? It's, um, it's so easy to become a slave to your GPS when actually there's no need to. So it's just a matter of developing your confidence and, and learning how to navigate with the shadow and learning about the stars and learning about the little telltale indicators on the ground. How readily available is water? How do you ensure it's safe to drink? And what do you carry? Yeah, well, good question. So, so if, I, if I focus on the last one first, it's if you've got camels, you have to carry a huge amount of water because... Uh, 
you know, people often ask us, why, why don't you dress in traditional Arab clothing when you're doing your journeys? So my response to that is, what's the point? You know, it's, uh, we're not, we're not reenacting. We're not going backwards. We're using, there's nothing wrong with looking backwards in expeditions. You know, I, I learn a lot by reading Thesiger and Thomas's books. Uh, you know, my, style of leadership on expeditions is based on a guy who went to the Northwest Pass Passage in 1820. You know, in, in his early 20s, he kept more than 90 men alive, overwintering on an uninhabited island that he, no one had ever been to. You know, there, there's lots that you can learn by looking back, but, but you know, I try to really look forward and, 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 um, and reflect today and, and, and the future rather than the past. Um, um, Camels are great. They they add a real romance to expeditions. And, and and but there's a real. It's not just the romantic reason for using them. You know, a camel will plod along at seven kilometres an hour. And even when I'm I've walked myself fit, so it take, usually takes me about ten days to walk myself fit. You know, I, I can only even on a flat gravel plane, I, I can hold about four four kilometres an hour probably. Uh, over over forty kilometer day, but your camel will will go to six, six to seven quite comfortably. You could push them much harder, but if you want to use them every day and expect them to perform the next day, it's good to not push them too hard. So you know you can cover much more ground more quickly uh, when you use camels. But you know camels will drink a hell of a lot of water. That when that head goes into a bucket, your twenty liters goes within one slurp, and uh, and that's just the camel. And, uh, you know, I, I don't drink when I'm in the desert anywhere near the volume of water that people recommend that you should. I can't. It's just almost impossible. And, uh, you know, you do you do adjust. I mean, I've lived out here for 25 years now. I'm, I guess I'm in a constant state of slight dehydration, but that's, that's the norm, really. I don't drink. I, I would have to really force myself to drink three litres of water a day. Really have to force myself. Um... But, you know, you read all the expert guidebooks and they'll tell you much more than that. Well, the practicalities of such... If you've got an expedition of four people, five people, uh, if, if it's a 49-day expedition, um, five people drinking three litres a day, that's 15 litres a day, that's 15 kilos of water a day just for the people. Um, you multiply that by 49, 50 days, plus 20 litres a day for each camel and you've got four camels so you've got a huge amount it's, it's just just uh it's 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 very very difficult to carry everything that you would need so you so you are dependent if you're doing an extended mobile desert expedition you are dependent on finding sources of water and those sources of water are much harder to find these days because the Bedou that kept them open years ago to survive have, have abandoned the interior of the desert to move to the periphery. So, so number one is that, that the water holes in the wells are much fewer than they've ever been and a lot of people don't know exactly where they are. And, and even Thesiger and Thomas, who kept meticulous notes, well, blimey, they were using a sextant in the desert, which is pretty, pretty, you know accurate enough for them but but if you're if you're searching for a a small water hole uh, hopelessly inaccurate um um so on our big journey across the empty quarter 
we were lucky. You know, we you can look at the old maps um, and the Saudis and the Omani people. You know, people have travelled that desert for years, going to Mecca, doing the pilgrimage from Oman. But they wouldn't go across the heart, but they'd have to skirt across the edge. Um, and and that was the way they would navigate from waterhole to waterhole, from Bir Hadi to Bir Faisal to Bir Mat to Bir Mark to Bir Shay. And, you know, you'd go to all these waterholes. You know, in the UK, I navigate by pubs. Um, in, in, in the desert, you navigate by waterholes. And uh, so you you know that the famous ones are still kept open by the Bedou or the, um, the, the border guards, the military border guards that patrol the political boundaries of these countries. Uh, the oil companies, Aramco, Shell, BP, you know, they will have been traveling the sands, prospecting for oil, and they will have um, found the old water holes. And, and some, so sometimes if you're lucky, you know, you'll find a water hole that's been really well preserved. The telltale sign is a 45-degree lump of metal, which is the arm with a little pulley wheel above the well. And that's what you're always looking for. There are wild camels in the desert, so if you follow their tracks as well, they can lead you to water holes. But not every water hole is drinkable, and that comes back to the point you said, you know, what is drinkable? So a lot of the water holes are very sulfurous, um, so the ca even the camels won't drink and it stinks of rotten eggs. There's, there's absolutely nothing that you can do about that. Uh, but sometimes we lower a bucket down and pull the bucket up and uh, the water didn't smell of sulfur. You know, it must be millions of years old, I would imagine, from a, an ancient aquifer. Um, but perfectly drinkable. And uh, we, we, I, I carried some small catadin filters, but I never, I, I never used them. You know, we had, we always have support vehicles now because of the unreliability of water and and, and the sheer weight. Um, but um, you know, that combination of what the what little bit the vehicles were able to carry, plus what we were able to find from looking at the old maps, plus a stroke of luck here and there, enabled us to get through. And in terms of vehicles, you know, you've mentioned that they're there as support vehicles often on your expeditions. I understand why when it comes to kind of adventurous expeditions where you want to travel in a certain style for your own reasons. When it comes to scientific expeditions, is there a legitimate reason to travel via camel or is the done thing now to travel in an overland vehicle? Oh, I don't think there's anything wrong with either, really. It depends what your objectives are. You know, if you've got to cover a lot of ground and your time is limited, then use vehicles. What, what's, what's wrong with that? Um, I, don't, I don't see anything wrong with it. And if you talk to the uh, geological team looking, searching for these lithic sites in Saudi Arabia, they are almost entirely vehicle-based. You know, if you're not, the, 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 air, the, the amount of ground you're going to cover is, is, is going to be extremely limited. You know, you contrast that if you're, if you're doing a survey on a particular oasis of birds or dragonflies and the, the need to travel and cover large distances is not there... You know, why do you, need, why do you need a vehicle other than periodically dropping in supplies of, of, of food and water for you? Um, but me, I, I use a combination of the two. I, I, I like that romantic stuff. I like working with camels. They, you know, I just love animals, but I also enjoy riding camels and camel husbandry is a real art. You know, I'm very much a beginner and, you know, I, I always travel with you know, Bedouin people who are much more experienced than I am because um, I learned so much from them, not just about camel husbandry, but about desert medicine and, uh, and, 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 and things like that. 
Yeah, and I'd definitely like to come on to that in a second. But before we do, how important is a basic knowledge of vehicle maintenance? And would you ever travel with, you know, a mechanic, somebody who knows how to fix these things? I've never travelled with a mechanic. Um, and you know what? I think I've got one of the last Land Rover Defenders off the production line outside the house here. And uh, I think 2015, 110 Defender. And even that, you lift the bonnet, uh, really, it's almost a sealed engine now. So it's so hard. I mean, I take my Land Rover to a garage here in Muscat, um, and the first thing they do is plug in a laptop, and, that, and that's a Land Rover Defender. So your chances of being able to repair anything in the field other than changing a wheel, um, you know, so you highly like to have a blowout with constantly deflating and reinflating your tyres. You're probably going to pop a rim. Um, you might have a fan belt issue, but, you know, probably not. Um you know, other than basic stuff that you and I can do in the front drive of our house, the, a mechanic is, 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 you know, it's it's something I've, I've never even considered taking really because, um, you know what, I take an Iridium um, or rather a Thorea satellite phone. So, so Thorea is the best satellite phone to use in the desert because the, uh, the, 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 the satellite is in a geostationary orbit above Abu Dhabi, so you always have a very strong... Um, very strong signal, you know, if, if I, and this is the difference between today and yesterday, isn't it? If you really need help, you can get help pretty quickly if you need it. You can be very remote. I mean, we didn't see anyone for about 25 days in the empty quarter, not, not a tyre track, not a person, nothing, not a plane going overhead, not a single bit of plastic, wonderful. But uh, you really, if you re really needed help, you know, I had a doctor on the end of a sat phone, one in New Zealand, one in the UK, so I've got the 24-hour clock covered. They were on call. You know, it's easy to, it's easy to pull in, pull in a, a, um, advice for a vehicle or a spare part if you, should you need one. But I'm, I've never needed one in 25 years. Yeah, and I think that's the, again, it's a slightly more kind of ethical question, but... It's around that whole style of expedition point. You know, it's very easy to be a purist, whereas actually if you have a scientific objective, et cetera, or, you know, just accepting that the modern world is how it is and sometimes, you know, use what's there. Exactly, exactly. People, I mean, it's so easy to, you know, lots of people come to Omar, lots of people love going to the desert, lots of people love the old mud brick buildings and, 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 and ask the Bedouin, why on earth? Why on earth don't you live in these lovely old quaint mud brick villages anymore? Well, why on earth would you? It's uh, if there was no air conditioning and life was pretty tough. Yeah, yeah, and that's a natural, beautiful segue into what I'd like to talk about. I mean, I'm very passionate about Bedouin people, and I've travelled a lot in Jordan because of them. Um, and you mentioned, you know, that you do use guides and who you use, but why do you work with the Bedouin? What makes a good guide when you're thinking about who you want to support you in these environments? So uh, I don't use guides um, because we, we 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 all walk into the unknown together, really. Um, um, but it's, it's about giving back as well. You know, life's pretty tough, um, and uh, and you know, I've lived in here lived in Oman for 18 years and, and Arabia for 25 and uh, I still feel I'm a visitor and I, I can bring something to help people who live life pretty much on the edge really. I mean that, the one thing that connects my two worlds of polar and desert are people living on the edge. You know if you, the, the, the bible of desert travel is Thesiger's Arabian Sands. The bible of 
Arctic is Arctic Dreams by Barry Lopez. And and Lopez talks about um, the native eye and and how the Bedouin of Arabia have it and how the Inuit have it. They, they miss nothing. They are so in tune with their environment. And I love that. So, you know, I, I'm very comfortable sitting around a fire with the Bedouin people. I mean... If you read T.E. Lawrence, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, which, which is another great read, he refers to that fireplace in the desert as the oldest university on earth. And he's absolutely right. You know, problems have been resolved, disputes have been resolved for thousands of years around that fireplace. Um, and and, and, that, and that, that, that simplicity of life is, is a joy. And to be able to share that with uh, Bedouin people and, and to just live amongst them and to watch them and to support them financially uh, a little bit uh it for me is, is is great i could easily do my expeditions without them but they would be real i think there would be hollow experiences without them and for those who are more inexperienced maybe planning their first desert um expedition whether they've been on expedition or not before what would they look for in a in a you know guide for want of a better word or otherwise well, first of all, I think they need to be very careful and uh, and they need to talk to people about... Because um, there are guides and guides, you know, there, there's, there's a growing tourism sector here in Oman, for example, and uh, people will claim to be desert guides, but they, they, they know how to drive a four-wheel drive to a tented desert camp. Well, that for me is not a guide, not, not the kind of guide that I want. I want someone who can tell me about the plants and uh, can explain to me, why he is refusing the Panadol that I'm offering him uh, and, 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 he, and he insists on, 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 on mixing two or three little different brightly coloured powders because he's totally at one with herbal medicine that, that, that you know, he's kept his family alive for, for hundreds, hundreds of years. And, uh, and so there are guides and guides and I would say do your research really because it's, it's so easy to find someone who claims to be a guide. But actually, when you scratch away, all, all they can tell you is um, what time the sun sets and um, how old that fort is. And, and, and they know the best way to get you to your desert camp where you're going to spend your, your luxury night uh, in, in your desert camp tent. So, you know, research is absolutely everything. And don't just settle for the first person that you find. A ask questions. And... Um... In terms of campcraft, you know, whether vehicle supported or otherwise, obviously you can carry more with the vehicle, etc. But what are the main considerations when it comes to, you know, overnighting in the desert? Uh, the main considerations are, well, bearing in mind you're, pro you're likely to travel in the winter. Not many people do desert expeditions in the summer. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a reason why Thesiger and, and Philby and Thomas lived so long. It's because they did their expeditions in the winter, which is perfectly sensible. So just bear in mind that, that it gets jolly cold and, and the diurnal range between, even in winter, you know, in the day it'll be the high 20s, which in Britain is, certainly in Inverness, is classified as a heat wave. But out here that's pretty cold. Um, so ranges from the high 20s in the day down to, you know, we've had it just on the cusp of zero, uh, slightly under zero degrees. So, so it really drops very carefully, very, very rapidly as soon as that sun, so that sun goes down. The sun's your greatest enemy. Um, so shade is very important if you can take some kind of light, lightweight, thick um, canopy that you can rig up with trekking poles. Pegs are obviously useless for anything. So you take lightweight Hessian sandbags. 
that, that are very light to roll up and carry, but you can fill with sand, they become a dead weight. So those are your sand anchors. Getting out of the sun is your biggest enemy, but that disappears at six o'clock every day. Um, you may be warm when you go to sleep and roll up in your blanket at, at, at six o'clock, seven o'clock at night, but by three o'clock in the morning, you'll be absolutely shivering. And uh, so, so take an extra blanket. It's always a, always, always a wise one. And don't be surprised if you wake up soaking wet, because even in the deserts, there's often a very, very heavy dew. But the big difference between Oman and Scotland is... Um, you know, everything's dry within an hour uh, rather than staying perpetually wet for the entire duration of your of your expedition. And what are the other considerations? You know, you say the sun's the biggest enemy in terms of, obviously we've talked about water, we've talked about shelter, but during the day whilst travelling, what can you do to mitigate against the inevitable, you know, sunstroke, heat, etc.? Yeah, so good question. So, so, so your one option is to obviously look at the moon um, because the moon... You know, it's the year 1470, I think, here in Oman, um, not 2023. Uh, and that's because in the Arab world, we have a lunar calendar. And uh, every month is about 28 days long. Um, so you're much more, I am much more aware of the moon here because the sky is often clearer at night uh, than it is in, in, in other parts of the world. So, so keep an eye on the moon because if it's a full moon, um, reverse your clocks. So what we did skiing across Greenland years ago when the snow got soft. Um, Travelling at night is, is fantastic because you can still navigate by the stars and then just rig up your shade during the day and, and sleep during the day. That's one option. Um, if you don't want to reverse your clock and travel at night, the other option is to um, just make sure you're covered up. Look at what people wear on the Marathon de Sable, for example. You can get some very lightweight, high-tech clothing, which covers you up to your neck, down to your wrists. These are sort of lightweight stuff that you can run in quite comfortably. They get a bit sweaty, but they dry very quickly. Um, so long trousers, long-sleeved shirts, um, obviously a good sun hat, um, and just watching those bits that are exposed, the back of your hands, for example, if you're using trekking poles, my, my backs of my hands get burnt. I have to remember to slap plenty of cream on those. Sand goggles, again, um, look at the Marathon de Sable gear advice there. You can get very lightweight sand goggles um, rather than sexy sunglasses that make you look cool but actually don't do a great job in terms of the glare of the... Of the, of the of the sun, so it's it gets very easy to um, very easy to to find lightweight clothing these days in you know these these elite athletes uh, in in extreme environments. So there's a lot of gear out there that there wasn't um, ten fifteen years ago. I think that's really good advice because there's you know as you've pointed out throughout this conversation, people have done this before. You know there might be variations on what it is that whoever's listening to this is planning, but. The reality is somebody very clever and very talented has done something similar before and, you know, the internet is a special place. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, looking at the marathons, it's a very, very good idea. Um, so just a couple more quick specific questions. When it comes to wildlife, what needs to be considered in the desert? I think people imagine this kind of barren landscape with nothing in it, but are there wildlife dangers? Uh, there, there, there are dangers, but 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 you know nothing's going to leap out and 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 gore you in your sleeping bag in the middle of the night. It's um, um, 
you know, there's, there's a great book called, I think it's called Elements or Wild by someone called Jay Griffiths. And uh, each chapter is one, is, chapter, one is a chapter on rock, one is on ice, one is on sand. And, and she, re, she, she uses a lovely term which describes the face of a sand dune as the morning's newspaper. And it tells the story of what's gone on during the night. And, and so you may think that the desert you're walking through is, is deserted. It is far from it. I've never been a de- in a desert that has no life. And uh, and you only need to look at a sand dune at sunrise, the face of a dune, to realise that that's, that sand you've been lying on is has been alive. There are little zip lines of beetles and lizards and geckos and uh, and little gerbils and um, foxes. There's everything. The desert comes to life at night, which is which is eminently sensible. Um, you know, it's only 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 British people that insist on doing things in the heat of the day really but it's um um you know the desert is alive there are snakes there are scorpions um at outward bound we've trained twenty four thousand people um most of them have been in the desert for four days sleeping in so so you've racked up we've racked up a huge number of of man days in the desert and man hours i think we've had two scorpion stings in 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 13 14 years of 24,000 people I've lived out here for 25 years stung by a scorpion once and you know you, despite what you see on Lawrence of Arabia you're not going to die from a scorpion sting it hurts it throbs like hell but you know 6 hours later it will have gone um snake bites also very very rare to see a snake in putting it in perspective in the winter far, far less likely than in the summer. So if you're doing your, your desert expedition in the winter, you know, you have to be you have to be aware, of course you do, but but you know, we saw one snake in 49 days walking every day, 1,300 kilometers, and it was so cold it could barely move. I can I could prod it gently with a stick and it it, it, it was just so cold it couldn't move. So the the reality is you're you you're as likely to be bitten by an adder uh, in Scotland, possibly more likely to be bitten by an adder in Scotland than you are by a snake in the desert. And scorpions are there. They're much more active in the summer, in the warmer weather. In the winter, when most desert expeditions take place, they're, 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 they're pretty few and far between. And when it comes to things like emergency, evacuation, medical, etc., um, outside of the standard expedition list, because, you know, in other episodes of this podcast, we're talking about health and safety, medical prep, etc. But desert specifically what needs to be considered around evacuation plan, alterations to a first aid kit, etc. Well, your evacuation plan is the, the same as it would be in any environment, I would imagine, really. You know, you've, I always work back from worst-case scenarios. So where, where on our expedition are we, are we going to be furthest from help? And, and therefore, what do I need to have in place to make sure that if we have a serious incident, then we can get people out? And then you put all the protocols into in, in, into place. So working, you know, working from the worst case scenario outwards, um, you know, you've got heli in Oman, Saudi Arabia. You've got you've got helicopter rescue opportunities. You've got the the remote oil fields and gas fields. They've all got medical facilities that you can you can tap into should you ever really need to. Um, on some expeditions, I take medics, but. But more more recently, and especially in the desert, I tend not to. Um, most of the team have done advanced wilderness first aid, which is 
beyond your standard first aid stuff. Um, but I've got really great people on the end of a phone if I need them. You know, I've got Sean Hudson in the UK, Wilderness Extreme Medicine. I've got John Apps who does the medical stuff and Patriot Hills um, are standing by in New Zealand. And, you know, I, I know both of them understand expeditions and, and, and know where I am and, and, uh, and what the capabilities are. Um, but again, you know, it's, uh, it's a matter of just ticking all the right boxes, making sure all the expedition team fill out a medical form so we're all completely aware of the issues. We're all completely aware of what medication we all carry individually, um, taking a little bit more to make sure that we've got enough, um, you know, tailoring that to the environment. Your, your biggest challenge is sunburn. Well, you know, there's stuff you can take for that in terms of sun protection, but also sand in your eye. Sand, that, that's probably the the most debilitating thing. Uh, so making sure you put your goggles on early enough, but if in case you don't and you've got sand in your eye, uh, then making sure you've got eye wash to flush that eye out should you need it. And also having the humility to realise that you're travelling with people for whom all of the technical stuff might not be something that they want to go down um you know my bedouin companions they'll have little 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 plastic bags of all sorts of little curious powders and potions that they will mix together and they will swear blind that that'll cure um that'll cure anything and um when i ask the question well what if it doesn't then often what they'll do they'll lift their robe and they'll show me the burn marks on their stomach and on their backs um, which is this 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 process called wasm, which is still going on here in the Arab world. In fact, one of my young Omanis at work here at Outward Bound had a bad back recently and uh, he's tried all sorts of things. And um, when he went back to the place where he started and said, you know what, it still hasn't been sorted, he was asked to go into a back room where there was someone with some red-hot charcoals and a nice bit of glowing metal in the end of the, the charcoal. And uh, and Wassam, I think you touch, I think there's seven places on the body, uh, one pretty painful behind each ear, one either side of the stomach, one on the back of each heel. And I tell you what, when 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 you've been burnt like that, the the, the pain that you were experiencing originally has has has, has has miraculously disappeared, and uh, and so you know it's it's very easy to go through. There's there's nothing particularly complicated and sophisticated about desert expeditions that is different to mountain or polar. But uh, you have got this 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 fantastic um, layer of traditional medicine that you can um, bolt onto that and and be aware of as well. But you perhaps wouldn't advocate carrying a red hot coal as part of your everyday first aid kit. Uh, I I would not no. No, <laughs> Thomas. Thomas, in his book that he wrote in 1930, <laughs> where he he wrote a beautiful book called Arabia Felix, and um, and and there's there's a little passage in it, Matt, where he says, "I tried my explosive medicines that did not do the trick," and so he 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 then took the bolt out of his rifle because you know scientific research in those days involved shooting pretty much everything that moved and skinning it and preserving it and carrying it back to the natural history museum in london so he took the bolt out of his rifle and put that in the fireplace and they used that to uh, to do the burning but um, you know you can you can always improvise should the uh, should the need be be there <laughs> hey so what would you say we haven't covered in this conversation that you think is important to mention? 
if anything? Oh, I don't know. I think you've asked some great questions there. I would say maybe just add the spiritual side to it. You know, I'm, I'm not a great... Um, not a great romantic, but I do find uh, I do find the desert an incredible place spiritually. I find it incredibly powerful. I find it incredibly ancient. You know, I sit on a dune, and do you know what? I think it wouldn't surprise me if a bunch of pterodactyls came lopping over those dunes over there. It's just an ancient landscape that, it, it, you know, the silence is incredible. And and again, you you, you look at explorers like Nansen. Nansen said that, you know, the answers will not come. Something like, he came up with a famous quote, which says something like, the answers will not come from the, the noisy, rushing centres of civilization. The solutions will come from the lonely places. And, and, and in saying that, I believe he, he was going down the same line as Kurt Hahn with Outward Bound. In, in that, that time, we all need time to reflect so on an outward bound course, the most important time is the solo. And that's the time when you're on your own and you're stitching it all together. And, and you know, deserts are just extraordinarily beautiful places. They're incredibly fragile. But in, in today's world of, you know, mental well-being and um, the stress of modern life, I think deserts have a value that, that is that is increasing uh, exponentially in terms of, of the human spirit and, 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 and our mental well-being. I could not agree with you anymore. <laughs> um, so my final kind of ops or logistics style question, um, for those who want to kind of up their desert skills, how can they or should they do that in the first instance? Uh, I would say just, just like doing your mountaineering apprenticeship, you know, I, I, I did my sort of traditional UK mountaineering apprenticeship. You go to Dartmoor doing your 10 tours or your whatever it is. You, then you go to North Wales in the summer and and then you go to Scotland in the summer and then you do Scotland in the winter and then you go to the Alps and then you go to the Himalayas. And it's the same with desert, really. You know, you just do your apprenticeship slowly and, and, and start sensibly and small. And, um, you know, you can. it's very easy to set up a static camp on the edge of the desert here in Oman, for example, very accessible, seven-hour flight from London. You're on the edge of a beautiful desert, which the Royal Geographical Society studied really intensely in the 1980s. Uh, you could easily set up a static camp, you know, low risk. You're within sight of, of telegraph lines and you've got 4G on your phone when you walk to the top of, of, a, of a sand dune. But, you know, learn live there for 10 days, uh, learn about the sand, learn about the realities of walking in sand and the shadows and, you know, learn those soft skills in, in, in a non-threatening, safe environment and then build from build from that. Um, you, you never know everything. You, you, in the desert, you're always dealing with unpredictability, the wind, sandstorms, camels, very, very nervous animals, you know, great one day, but but a nightmare the next. So... But you can learn a lot uh, to prepare you, and uh, and like anything, like any environment, don't don't dive in at the deep end, jump in at the shallow end, and and just learn how to swim first. And I think this um, this conversation has been peppered with the answer to my final question, but I'll ask it anyway. Which is, what is it that keeps drawing you to the desert, and what is it that kept you there so long? Ah, oh, that combination of people and place. It's it's. Um, you know, you, you, you ask Thesiger and Thomas and Philby um, 
about their desert travels and, and it was as much about the people as the place. And, and I think the desert, it, it's just... You know, what I put in the back of my Land Rover is not hugely dissimilar to what I put in the back of a sled to go across Greenland or to go across Svalbard. It's just slightly less feathers in your sleeping bag, but the, 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 that, 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 sense of, that sense of skiing in pristine snow when a fresh fall of snow, which is glistening like little diamonds and crystals, and I'm sure we've all been there, and you, you think you're the only person in the world, and that silence and uh, your breaking trail. And it, I find that same experience in the desert too. Uh, and someone could have walked there the day before, but but you know every afternoon the wind builds up, the, their footprints will be obliterated, and you know there's a fresh page for the newspaper to be written, and uh, and and I, I just that, get that great feeling of of being on the edge, uh, of of being a pioneer in a, in a soft, silly kind of way that you feel that you're out there on your own, um, and I just find great great. Great contentment. And, uh, you know, when we overwintered on Svalbard, we, we'd read a chapter or two every night aloud. So myself and there, there were two of us through the period of total darkness. And we, we, through an old Tilly lamp, we, we'd read a couple of pages of Sandy Glen's Under the Pole Star every night. And, and so one of you could lie in your sleeping bag because it was bitterly cold. And uh, the other one, you'd have to have your hands out with gloves and, and you'd read aloud. And uh, and when we'd read every book, we'd start to get into some pretty philosophical conversations, which isn't really my department. And I remember a voice coming out of the darkness saying, you know, what's life all about? Why, why, why do we come to places like this, do you think? And... Uh, and for me, it's all about contentment and, uh, I, I, and, and fit. I find great contentment um, in the desert, in the Arctic, in, 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 in lonely, quiet places. Now, I'm not a person for noisy restaurants and nightclubs. That's just not me at all. But uh, so it's for me, it's just that, that tranquility, that, that contentment, but also that, that sense of adventure that you're on the edge of something. Thanks for listening. For more information on how to get started with planning your own expedition or field research project, head to rgs.org. This podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft, produced and edited by Laura Jaycock for Terra Incognita Publishing, and Shane Windsor and Laura Melville for the Royal Geographical Society.